Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Hear now God's Word. And when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, that's a reference, remember the apostles have been arrested and now have been released by an angel, uh, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went and, and the office, with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the councils stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. Well, we are still wanting to understand how the Christian faith grew so rapidly against all human odds. We left our story with the apostles having been sprung from prison by an angel, and they, per the angel's instruction, are back at the temple preaching the gospel and healing people. But the angel, uh, you recall, uh, or excuse me, uh, remember that Peter and John had previously been arrested and issued an edict not to preach or to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. But the angel had told them when he springs them out of prison, at this point, all the apostles, to go right back to the temple 
and to speak the words of this life to all the people. So so here they are in an open act of civil disobedience for the simple reason they must obey God rather than men. That's the principle. Meanwhile, back at the Sanhedrin, the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with the elders and the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison. They don't know what's happened. They, they send a messenger to the prison to go retrieve the apostles to bring them before the council. And this scene, to me, is reminiscent of the empty tomb on the day of Jesus' resurrection. You can only imagine the embarrassment of the leadership of the Sanhedrin when it's announced that they're not there. The prison's empty. The guards are there. The doors are locked. We don't know what happened. Not only that, but upon further inquiry as to, well, where are they? Where do they go? Guess where they are? They're right back at the temple in Solomon's porch, doing the exact same thing they were doing when you arrested them. They're preaching, they're healing, and crowds have gathered. And so they immediately dispatch another force to go and re-arrest the apostles. Uh, But they had to be careful to do so, it says in the text, and not use any violence. They had to be careful about how they do this because they were very concerned about the reaction of the crowd that was there. Well, the institution of, of the authority of the Sanhedrin was being challenged. This was really open contempt of court. The fundamental principles, then, of civil disobedience have been laid down in the Scriptures. When a given authority misuses its God-given power to command what God forbids... Or then, or to require what God, or, or to forbid what God requires, then the Christian's duty, our duty, is to disobey the human authority and to remain obedient to God. Now, there may be consequences to that. There will be consequences for that. In similar circumstances, this means it is your duty And it is my duty to do the same thing. Not only had the apostles filled Jerusalem with their teaching, they had also gone so far as to place the blame of Jesus' death upon the Sanhedrin. The blood of Jesus was on their hands. Think about it. Pilate faced a different crowd a few weeks earlier a crowd that was in part spurred on by these very same chief priests and elders. And we read in Matthew 27, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, in other words, he buckled under the political pressure, he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this blood, of the blood of this just person. You see it. It's not my fault. I just work here. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Before that, just before that, do you recall the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem? You see, you need to remember, we need to remember, no matter what we're watching or seeing around us, that the political swings can be very rapid and dramatic. Change can come like that. Don't be deceived by what you're seeing and hearing at any given moment. God is at work. There are things going on you and I don't know about. We keep going before Him. There's really only one central question we need to ask and answer is, am I, are we, being faithful to God? Yeah, but they're, no, it's not a matter of what they're doing. It's a matter of what we're doing. Are we trusting God? Are we believing God? Are we obeying God? Are we committed to Him? That is the central question always. Now the Sanhedrin demands an answer from the apostles regarding the apostles' disobedience. And this was their answer. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You killed him, God raised him. You rejected him, God vindicated him. And now from his exalted position... This Savior who gives repentance and forg- this Savior gives repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. In other words, Jesus was doing what the Sanhedrin was supposed to be doing. Then we read, when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. Then one of the councils stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. You'll go to another room. We're going to talk about you. We're going to figure out what to do with you. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. This is really political advice. For some time ago, and he gives the story of Thaddeus and Judas, two others who had stirred up some trouble, they died, it went away. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if the plan 
If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Well, of course, Peter was very bold and defiant in his response here to the Sanhedrin. He's kind of the spokesman. Apparently, witnessing the resurrection of the Son of the living God will do that for a man. And perhaps Peter is remembering some of what Jesus taught. Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So seeing that the council was furious and getting worked up, then one of the leading Pharisees, Gamaliel, tries to simmer them down. Now at this point, I want to acknowledge the work of Derek Thomas and his commentary on Acts, and I'm going to draw a good bit from his work on this section. Gamaliel is often brought out as the champion of toleration and magnanimity, uh, the patron saint of do-nothing and wait, the wait-and-see branch of Christendom. Well, let's just, let's just see what happens. But let's think about who he was and what exactly was his counsel on that day in Jerusalem. Rabban Gamaliel the Elder was the grandson of Hillel, the famous scribe and rabbi who was born in Babylon in 75 B.C. and died around 15 A.D., in Acts 22.3, he is referred to as Paul's teacher. Thus, during the period covering Acts 5, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, um, uh, may well have been in Jerusalem in what we would call seminary. And so Paul may have been closely following, at this point, the, rise, uh, the rising Jerusalem house church movement, which at this point was still... Uh, a fraction, excuse me, a faction within uh, Judaism, but one that was causing massive uneasiness among the ruling authorities of the Jews. Not only had the apostles continued to violate the previous edict and warning of the Sanhedrin not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, but they had escaped from custody, remember, now the night before, and a, and a message that had focused with a message that it had focused exclusively on Jesus Christ. Basically, Peter had said that they were following God and the Sanhedrin wasn't. we got a choice. We can follow God or we can follow you because you're not following God. That was a pretty serious allegation against the Sanhedrin. The gauntlet had been firmly thrown down, enough so that they were ready to kill them. So why did they want to kill them? What exactly had they done? Had they been guilty of some acts of violence or terrorism? No. The Sanhedrin's reaction to the apostles was precisely the same as their response had been to Jesus several months previously. Just as Pilate could not find anything to justify the death of Jesus, so the action of the apostles also were free from criminal taint. 
As with Jesus, the Jewish authorities simply desired to put them to death. We need to get rid of them. They're a nuisance. They're trouble for us. And Jesus, of course, had warned the disciples that these days would come. In John 15, he said, remember the word that I said to you. And I have to imagine that as the apostles, or even even when they're in prison, are definitely talking among themselves and recalling. Remember Jesus? Remember what Jesus said to us? It's happening right now. Here we are. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there's a lot of recall going on on the part of the disciples. Something, by the way, we need to do. When things are happening, that's when we need to start remembering. What does the Bible say? What did Jesus say about this situation? What do we need to be doing right now? Do we need to be praying? Do we need to be encouraging one another? Do we need to be bold? Do we need to be courageous? Do we need to be afraid? The very mention of the name of Jesus seemed to bring about a violent reaction on the part of the Sanhedrin. It's almost as though any message no matter how bizarre, would have been preferable to one that insisted on the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. By the way, and I think this is really crucial here for us to understand, I think they understood it, it is the exclusiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so offensive to people. The exclusiveness. If Jesus is just one among many, then he is no threat at all. He can be dismissed. He can be ignored. The claim of being one with the Father and that no man can come to the Father except through Him, that is the offense. There is salvation in no other name, the apostles had said, and this brought about the violent response of the Jewish authorities. We have for some time faced a similar situation in our own culture. In fact, it has grown worse in the last few years, and I think it will continue to grow worse. Preaching and teaching about Jesus is tolerated so long as it is seen as a personal and private view. Do you feel intimidated intimidated about speaking up about Jesus and about the gospel? I don't know if I can say that. I think I'll just be quiet. I think I'll whisper. I think he's a Christian. Maybe I can talk to him during the break. I don't want to speak up too much. I mean, it could cost me something, right? People would think I'm weird. You can believe whatever you want to believe, as long as there is no claim made upon the belief system of someone else. Again, it is the exclusive claims of Christ that are found to be offensive. When we say to the idols of our own day, what Paul said to the idols, to the idolaters at Lystra, which was that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Do you think anybody laughed when he said that? Think anybody mocked Paul when he said that? You think they sneered? 
then of course, if you say that, you have offended the multicultural paradigm of our culture as well. Christianity may exist within the marketplace of ideas as one among many, but its claims to exclusivity will be met with fierce resistance and ridicule. And yet it's those very claims of exclusivity that offer the only real hope to a world that is in darkness. Therefore, neither we nor the apostles may shrink from the duty, even in the face of great opposition and scorn. We may not shrink from boldly proclaiming the only remedy. The world has and will treat this with sarcasm and derision. At times, more sympathy will be given to murderers than to Christians who believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. The rejection of Christianity is not something modern, brought about by the advancements made in science and understanding of the world in which we live. Unbelief has always had its irrational aspects. There was nothing rational about the way the Sanhedrin rejected the message of the apostles. They saw what the apostles were doing. They saw what Jesus did. They knew about the resurrection. They saw that man who had been crippled for 40 years in front of the temple, raised, walking and leaping and praising God. They saw the multitudes and the crowds who were being raised up and healed. They saw that. It wasn't a lack of evidence. They did it out of prejudice and fear. Chesterton observed that same irrationality of unbelief in the 20th century addressing the issue of evolution. He remarked, it is absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. Or again, on miracles, he comments, somehow or other, an extraordinary idea has arisen that disbelievers in miracles consider them them coldly and fairly, while believers in miracles accept them only in connection with some dogma or belief. The fact is quite the other way. The believers in miracles accept them, rightly or wrongly, because they have evidence for them. And the disbelievers in miracles deny them, rightly or wrongly, because they have a doctrine against them. That was exactly the case in our story where the multitudes had witnessed the healing miracles, many of them, as had the Sanhedrin. But there is no one blinder than he who will not see. You might recall that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, In John chapter 11, by the very next chapter, the chief priest had a similar response. Same bunch of people that we got, that we're dealing with here in Acts. It says in in John 11, now a great many of the Jews knew that he, that is Jesus, was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, 
but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. we got a resurrected corpse, and rather than being happy about that, rather than wanting to know how that happens, we want to kill the corpse. We want to kill this living resurrected person, Lazarus, we need to get him back in the grave because he's creating problems for us because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Gamaliel's advice shows us that sophistication and learning and respect amount to little when it comes to spiritual discernment. Furthermore, I point out the advice he gave, although initially savvy, maybe shrewd, was ultimately flawed. Evil doesn't always come to nothing. Ultimately, it does. Neither does God's ca- God cause the good to prosper on every occasion. That's why we have a whole list of martyrs through Christian history. Well, they took Gamaliel's advice, verse 40, and they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Let me point out, when they beat them, they really beat them. At the end of the beating, victims would lie lacerated and bleeding. It was meant to be a deterrent not only to them, but to anybody who heard about it or saw it. Paranoia had set in and the authorities were concerned about their own livelihoods as this Christian message spread further. So, they departed, the apostles departed, the text says, from the presence of the council, beaten, bloody, it says, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. James would later write, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How? How do you do that? Perspective is everything. How do you look at these circumstances? What do you see? These apostles weren't afraid anymore because they belonged to the resurrected Jesus who was sitting on the right hand of the throne of God and he was ruling from that place, reigning in heaven and on earth. And I want to ask you, is that who you belong to? Stop living in fear. Joseph Song a Romanian pastor who stood up to Ceausescu's repression of Christianity, wrote, He was to meet an officer from the secret police in the restaurant of a nondescript Romanian hotel. The communist officer had pledged to do what previous secret police officials had failed to do. That was to silence Song um, and, uh, and, and silence his ministry by offering him a secular job in exchange for a promise that he would never, ever preach the gospel again. 
Turning down the job spelled at least hard, a hard time in prison camp, and it might well mean his execution. Song met with the man, and without flinching, he turned down the job. I told the man, now I'm ready to die. You said you were going to finish me as a preacher. I asked my God, and he wants me to continue to be a preacher. Now I have to make one of you too angry. And I decided it's better to make you angry than God. He would later recount, Because of one of my writings, I was placed under house arrest for six months, during which time I was called in for interrogation almost daily. I was charged with propaganda endangering the security of the state. During that time, I still had to preach every Friday night and on Sundays. People listened just to see what sort of subject I would tackle. One Sunday, I preached on joy with Nehemiah 8.10 as my text. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Somebody told me, Joseph, for me, the message is just to know that for a whole week you were at the at an interrogation, I thought I was going to see a wreck on Sunday. But here you were with a shining face thundering about joy. That's the sermon for me. People were inspired, they were strengthened, and they got a new vision. So it is when we suffer for someone else's encouragement and salvation. What a difference knowing Jesus makes. What a difference it makes to life in this world and to death. This is why the apostles had no visible sense of fear. Suffering or no fear about the suffering that could lead to their deaths. They had come to understand that Jesus transforms the experience of death from one of cringing fear to one of glorious anticipation in the near presence of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. They had come to anticipate what Paul would describe, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Death held no terrors for them any longer. What a privilege to bear the name of Jesus and to live and die with him and for him. But note the second part of their response. They said, we're going to obey God rather than you. So they kept teaching and preaching, right? Second part of the response was they couldn't be silenced. And daily in the temple not hiding, in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It is evident that the New Testament church had gained a momentum that no bureaucratic authority could overthrow, no matter what intimidation tactics it threatened to employ. This is Christianity. It is a conviction in the hearts of men and women about their identity and the significance of Jesus that must be shared with others. It is something vibrant. It is something passionate. Do you 
want to change this crumbling culture that we live in? This culture of death? This idolatrous generation? Do you want to change that? Then it's time to speak up. It's time to to step out. We have the remedy. We have the good news. It's a matter of life and death. Nothing is more important than knowing the forgiveness of sins that is offered in Jesus Christ. Sharing the good news is the Christian's life calling. We have a job to do. We have a task that we're called to. We have a mission. We continue to be the next chapters in this glorious story that we're reading in Acts. It got started right here. It actually started a long time before that. It started in the Gospels, and then before that it started in the Old Testament. Remember, all the Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus said, were about him. And here we are, same story. We're on stage right now. Same mission. Been the same all from the beginning. One Savior. One Gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we often feel overwhelmed by the circumstances around us, and yet we know that you are above and over all those same circumstances. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us, and that no one can pluck us out of your hand. Grant us the courage and faith of the apostles so that we too might boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the people. Help us to trust in you with all of our hearts, even in the valley of the shadow of death. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is always something to be afraid of. People, things, circumstances. We're but little children in the dark. And so we easily forget that our Father is with us and that we belong to Him. When we are paralyzed by the fear of men or the fear of death, then we have forgotten that our God and Savior is bigger than men and has conquered death. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, we may boldly say, that's with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Apostle Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, pastor at Ephesus, who undoubtedly faced many challenges and much opposition, It seems that perhaps Timothy was prone to some anxiety, and so an exhortation was in order. And here's what Paul said to him. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, 
but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Let us come and rejoice together at the table of the Lord. Amen. And now, O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking. Increase our faith, establish our hope, and kindle our love. You have given grace to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. As we desire that men should do unto us, let us do first unto them. Help us now to be a disciplined people for your glory and our good. Bless our feasting and our resting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen.